Hi, I'm Julien Morissette, host and producer of the podcasts created for Reworking Together, Retravailler Ensemble, an exhibition on the theme of collaboration co-produced by La Galerie UCO and Carleton University Arts Gallery. This project is produced in partnership with Transistor Media and the Centre de Production Diamond and has received financial support from the Canada Council for the Arts, the Ontario Arts Council, and the Risa Greenberg Digital Initiatives Fund. Reworking Together, Retravailler Ensemble is a partnership between the two university art galleries in the Ottawa-Gatineau region. Working together and sharing resources to realize this project, all the while reflecting on the practical, symbolic, and ethical aspects of collaboration, underscores the ongoing importance of collaboration between institutions and in the advancement of curatorial and artistic practice. The exhibition, which takes place concurrently at Galerie Uco and QAG, brings together the work of eight Canadian and international artists to explore different approaches to and reflections on collaboration. My first guest today is Mihail Karikis, a Greek-British artist based in London and Lisbon. His work embraces moving image, sound, and other media to create immersive audiovisual installations and performances, which emerge from his long-standing investigation of the voice as a sculptural material and a socio-political agent. He often collaborates with communities, and his works highlight alternative modes of human existence, solidarity, and action. His project Children of Unquiet is presented until April 28th at the Carleton University Art Gallery. Mihail Karikis describes the premise of Children of Unquiet. Um, the project takes place in a location in Tuscany, which is in Italy, which is a geothermal valley. This is a very ancient place. It has a lot of legends associated with it, um, writing, but it also has a very rich industrial history, architectural history, um, and I suppose social um, context. So um, the Devil's Valley became the place of uh, an incredible technological innovation at the beginning of last century, when in 1911, um, an engineer found a way to transform the heat of the earth and the steam, the pressure of the steam that was coming out of the ground to transform it into electricity. So that was the birth of geothermal energy production, of green energy. And as you can imagine at the beginning, it was revolutionary. However, um, I'm still surprised that, that not even Italians know about this. Most Italians don't really know about this. Um, yeah, why is that? I think... Um, Well, I don't know the exact reason, <laughs> but I can only speculate. Yeah. I think, um, in particular, Tuscany is very... Or the, the, the people of Tuscany and, I suppose, the political class in Tuscany are responsible for creating a very specific um, image of the region which is a touristic image. Mm -hmm. And it always refers to the Renaissance uh, glory. 
So when we think of Tuscany, we usually um, tap into a very specific imaginary of a landscape which is given to us through images created mm -hmm. by Botticelli, mm -hmm. you know, by kind of Renaissance painting, you know, it's kind of rolling hills and cypresses and gentle kind of warm Mediterranean light. And not a plant or an industrial landscape. Exactly. So the image of a place that is, um, well, this is a kind of paradise image, you know, the Botticelli image of Tuscany. So an image of of the region which contradicts that, which is hellish, um, steaming, very smelly, it smells of sulfur, industrial um, and barren. These are not um, good for tourism. Um, also, they think, I think actually there is a great potential to develop a kind of branch in the tourist industry, which um, encourages people who are, or attracts people who are interested in that kind of uh, landscape, which is maybe closer to Iceland uh, rather than um, what we think of Italy. Um, And how did you end up there? So I was invited by an organization called Radio Papese, which is a sound-based duo of uh, like two women who run this organization, and they invite artists who are interested in sound um, to develop projects. The projects are usually sound-based. They don't involve any moving image. So at the beginning, um, when I was invited, they're based in Florence in a building called Villa Romana. Um, so when I was invited to develop this uh, project in the context of the residency, I was interested in um, in this valley, Valle del Diavolo, the Devil's Valley, uh, where this kind of geothermal phenomena happened. But I knew nothing about uh, the 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 industrial history of the place. All I knew about it was that. Um, according to some legends, Dante Alighieri, um, the epic poet, drew inspiration from the landscape to write descriptions of hell in his Inferno. So I was very interested in that, and I thought, okay, what if I, what if I re, re, what if I retraced Dante's steps? So this is what I what I did. Um, And in the meantime, I also found out that the very first feature film made in Italy was L'Inferno, which was uh, in 19... I might be wrong. I think it's either 1911 or 1914. Um, so this film, naturally, because of when it was created, it was silent. So my idea was to visit this landscape, retrace Dante's steps, and make sound recordings to create, based on those, a soundtrack for the silent film um, of the kind of the beginning of the 20th century. So this is how the whole project started. And this is what I did. That was the first part of the project. But it was not just a soundtrack. It actually ended up being 
a whole multimedia performance with two project projections and pre-recorded sound, narration and vocals uh, that were live, um, which is called 102 Years Out of Sync. So this is how the project started. But when I was there, um, I had an interesting encounter with a little boy. Um, I noticed that around this very old power plant, there were workers' villages, about five of them, which were completely deserted. And some of them very recently deserted. So um, I managed to get into some of the apartments and they still had bottles of water and furniture, calendars on the walls, but they were completely kind of abandoned. No one was there. So I was kind of thinking, what happened here? You know, what is the story behind this? And when I was um, exiting one of the villages, I saw a little boy. He must have been about seven or eight. So he started talking to me in Italian. My Italian is not really very good, <laughs> but that, I suppose, democratized our relationship because I looked like an adult, but I sounded like a child, whereas he looked like a child, but in comparison to me, he sounded like an adult uh, because his Italian was much better than mine. So we started having a kind of like hello kind of conversation and um like five minutes later i saw a woman his mum, who jumped out of um be she was behind a bush which i i think that i think she was um um i think she was uh probably having a wee um uh, and she jumped out of you know from behind the bush and she just came and dragged him away so the whole thing was really strange. Um, but so I kept thinking about this encounter with a boy and I had a very naive observ observation. Um, so I thought, okay, so what he wanted was different from what his mom wanted for him. Um, and then I started kind of reflecting on that very simple observation, but in a kind of bigger scale. Um, so if we think about the entire region, if we think about all that area with the five de deserted villages, I was thinking, so what is it that the villagers wanted for themselves? And what was it that the power plant wanted for them? Because I'm not quite sure, I, well, at that point I wasn't sure whether um, the villagers wanted to leave um, this is where the lives were and what the circumstances were behind, you know, all of that. So I started doing research and um, I contacted through this Radio Papeza residency. We contacted the local mayor as well as the power plant kind of management uh, team. And we started having conversations and we found out basically what had happened. Um, in around the 1950s, between the 1950s and 1960s, there were about 5,000 workers and their families who went to live there. This was a pioneering industry. They made incredible um, uh, workers' housing, which was of very, very high standard because they wanted to attract engineers, geologists, um, very specialized 
specialized um, workers to come and live there and and work in the power plant. But progressively, the power plant started introducing automation. So um, over 4,000 workers lost their jobs. So that was quite rapid. And um, when I visited, there were only 500 people working there. The rest was still operational, but automated. Um, so what's happened there? You know, it was, it was quite a shock to realize that. So we organized a consultation with parents and um, some of the politicians to find out more about, you know, what they wanted for their community and what their image of the future was. With no exception, all parents said that they imagine that their children would have to go to a different city or abroad to look for work, that there is nothing for them there. There's no future for for young people. And there was something about this um, um, narrative of a failed human endeavor, failed human project that really disturbed me. And I was thinking, so whose narrative is this? Is it the narrative of the industry that is being passed on? Is it the narrative of the children? Or is it the narrative of the parents? Um, so I decided that actually I had to ask the children directly. So this is how um, the collaboration with the children started. Um, when the project started, we organized a, a tour for the children through some of the abandoned villages. And the children were just amazed. I think there is something about a place which is in a liminal phase because this is not completely derelict. It's not derelict. It's not brand new. Um, and it's not demolished. Furniture is still there, and it's unkempt, but it's still, it looks as if it's livable, or with a very minor intervention, this place can become inhabitable again. So children, when we were there, um, they started talking to one another, and I noticed they were kind of thinking, Um, they were saying things like, oh, maybe we can turn this into an animal refuge or maybe we can turn this building into a children's uh, hotel or a children's uh, discotheque. So I was very amazed by all that. So they were already started create. They already started creating their own narratives of their own future in that place. So... um, how do I um, how do I develop that into a project? You know that how do I communicate that um, the fact that children have their own agency and that they can create their own, their own narratives? I mean, it's okay. I mean, maybe they're interested in the parents' opinion, but um, they also they have uh, the agency to be self determined. Um, were their parents there? No, the parents were not there. We didn't take the parents to that tour. 
Um, that changes the dynamic. Of course, of course it does. Because actually the children were the majority and then it was myself and then one of the people from the residency and an older man who was in his 80s and he used to work in the power plant. He was actually the one who was taking us around and he was explaining to the children what everything was. Some of them, in fact, had been born there. Um, but they, did, they didn't grow up there because their parents had left the villages. And they never went? It was off-limits no. for them? Yeah, no. I mean, it's a completely abandoned, kind of deserted place. I guess, I don't know. People move on. They don't go back. I don't know. It, it's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very big question. Why wouldn't they go back? But I suppose it's also very painful for them to go back. And all the housing uh, belonged to um, the power plant. So I'm not sure if over the decades some people were able to buy the houses and then they received some sort of compensation from the power plant. I'm not sure about that, but it is possible. So, um, so we went back to one of the old schools and I asked the children to write down this, the kind of narratives they started thinking about. And then we made an architectural maquette of the village as they imagine it in the future. So already kind of turning them into architects. But um, so what does sound feature in all this? Um, the entire landscape is very sonorous because of the geothermal phenomena. So there is uh, steam coming in various degrees, uh, both temperature as well as pressure, um, out of the ground, creating different sounds. The power plant also creates um, a lot of drones, droning sounds. Um, and there is this vast network, very complex network of pipes, um, which take steam from the earth to the power plant and all these pipes are outside they're overground i'm not sure why maybe because of when the plant was was built everything was above ground it's a huge intervention i mean in the landscape you really see you see it it's it's it looks like um it looks like a church organ that has geological proportions this is what it looks like. And were the kids familiar to those sounds or it was new to them? So um, some of them, of course, the kind of geothermal phenomena they're familiar with, you know, those sounds, but not so much of the, the drones of the power plant. And in the distance, from the distance, you can always hear the power plant, this kind of droning sound. Um, but it was through the project that um, these sounds were more directly addressed. So um, after several kind of sound walks with the children, um, we went back to the school and I would ask them, so what is the sound of this? And what is the sound of steam? And what's the sound of um, this pipe or that pipe? You know, it was, it, it kind of became a kind of sound game. And then they would respond in sounds. Um, some of them were imaginary sounds. So, for example, because there's this whole uh, legend around the devil in the area, uh, this is another another kind of myth, which 
um, is about um, it. According to this legend, um, the devil lived in one of the lakes, which is in the re in the area. But I'm not talking about a big lake. It's a kind of very small lake. Um, and the reason for that is because they used to um, put planks of wood um, before making boats. They used to put blank planks of wood into the water um, because of the minerals and the chemical consistency of the water because it's a, the whole landscape is volcanic and the water has uh, different kinds of minerals. Um, there was something about that, that it would seal or help seal the planks of wood before they made it into, um, con they constructed boats with it. But there is a story that says that they would always put a certain number of planks and then on the following day, there would always be one missing. So what happened to that one missing? Uh, the devil ate it or the devil got it for himself uh, and in return gave that sort of present. You know, it, it made, or uh, the devil made all the other planks um, somehow water resistant. I don't exactly, I mean, this, I'm just repeating a story as I heard it from a local. Um, so, um, so the children had all these other um, sounds that they imagined that the devil produced. So sounds like, um, you know, the devil's cries or the devil's laughter, cackling and heckling and this kind of sounds. So the entire um, soundscape that were created with the children consisted of both imaginary sounds as well as mimicries, sounds that they imitated that they had heard in the environment and then they imitated through this collaboration with the the, the kids the children how did you grow as an artist so that was the first time i worked with children in this project and um there was something that um made me feel very liberated because the kind of training that I received as an artist, being very aware of aesthetics and histories of aesthetics, is completely relevant when you work with children. They don't care. <laughs> what is uh, important for children is self-expression. So how do I express something in the most direct way? So this is what they do. And aesthetics is what is created out of that need or that drive to express themselves. Um, so I think this is how I grew. I became um, less precious about um, my kind of historical kind of references or my aesthetic um, inclinations and became more open to other influences and also to being ugly 
I think actually uh, they made me realize subsequently I made other projects with children and at the moment I'm working I'm working with children again uh, who are uh, eight years old I'm realizing that actually art is not or is less about um, creating um, some sort of well art is less about aestheticizing and more about being brave to also show ugliness you know the ugly side of of oneself or of life um that is brave i mean everybody can can beautify themselves mm -hmm. but actually i think it takes courage um to reveal something that is not aestheticized is not prettified it doesn't have a bow um yeah i think working with children has made me more more open to that thanks a lot uh, mihail it was really interesting thank you thank you for listening <laughs> Deuxième invité est Redmond Entwistle, artiste du projet Retravailler ensemble. À travers ses films, Redmond Entwistle mène à réfléchir à l'histoire récente, à ses lieux et à ses problématiques sociales par une approche documentaire radicale, de rejouer, reconstruire et reproduire des documents dans une réalité abstraite et archétypale. Ses œuvres filmiques procèdent aussi bien du documentaire que de la fiction, enquêtant sur les histoires de déplacement social et esthétique. Essayiste au sens le plus expérimental du terme, ses œuvres sont des explorations critiques de la relation entre capital culturel abstrait et site matériel historique. The main education facility basically breaks down into two kinds of spaces. This is important because philosophically, this is important to CalArts. There's preparation areas, and then there's performing areas. Now, the theaters and some others are obvious performing areas. But when you come to art, how does an artist perform? He paints a picture. His performance, really, is the moment that it's hung on the wall and it's seen in a gallery. Walkthrough a fait l'objet d'expositions personnelles à la Galerie Qubit, à la Tramway Gallery et à l'International Project Space. Son film Walkthrough est présenté jusqu'au 6 avril 2019 à la Galerie UCO. Let's start with the idea behind the walkthrough. Why did you want to make a film about Michael Asher's 1970s post-studio art class? Um, the first idea that came to me was around my own memories of um, studying at CalArts in the late 90s. And yeah, I guess there are, there are a few things that came together at the same time. Um, that's often how I work. Just It's not just one, one idea but um, putting together a few different different strands. Um, I think I'd just finished working, making a film called Monuments, which was a, a sort of fictional history of post-minimalist art and specifically three artists, 
Robert Smith and Dan Graham and Gordon Matter Clark. And in that film, I've been interested in trying to show some of the locations of their work alongside the language which they developed to speak about their work. So language was an important part of their working practice um, on a on a on a level with their sculpture. So they often were very concerned with how the work would be received and writing a kind of criticism that went alongside their own work. So to create the context for the reception of their work. So I was looking in that film a lot about the use of language in by contemporary artists and this really that that looking at that moment as a key moment when language came into art as a um, part of the practice. Um, and then I think reflecting on why I'd made that film, I started to wonder about language in teaching situations and thinking that maybe my interest in language there had been a reaction to my experiences of the use of language in various teaching situations. And and at the same time, at that moment, uh, 2011, when I began working on Walkthrough, or 10, 11, um, I was very conscious that these situations where um, audiences for art were encouraged to participate in the de- in the development of language were becoming very prevalent, not just in an educational situation, but also artists um, using discourse or uh, collabor- collaboration of one form or another in their work and museums and galleries also drawing, bringing in audiences through um, discussion as well became, seemed to be becoming more and more prevalent. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to question why that was happening at that moment. You know, why, um, and did it really, I think there's an assumption that speech participation and discussion equated to true democratic participation as well and i think it was a i guess at the moment when social media was kind of reaching its first full full expression and there was just a question for me about whether speech still functioned um in this way we assume it does one person one one voice one vote you know there's all these and actually starting to think that maybe something else was happening that that it's not so transparent anymore this um these connections between collective discussion and a democratic voice so 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 it started with all these questions i think also wondering questioning my own history um having studied at CalArts, my memories of that time and um and also how maybe I, how one uses one's own history and how these histories take on a kind of value, cultural value or cultural capital as well. So how can, I was interested in hagiography in the previous film monuments and in almost how the history of the art, not, not how the artists were per se, but how history is constructed around certain art movements, how certain artists get drawn out 
of a very complex web of relationships and working practices that are collaborative in some sense or an exchange of ideas. But then art history draws individuals out of that sea of work um, and positions them. And we buy into those stories, those mythologies. And, and I think uh, my own fascination with hagiography, with looking at historical material, with historical documents, starting thinking, to, wanting to question, you know, where that impulse come, came from also. Um, so, yeah, so all those... So all those questions went into the development of the film at the beginning, um, trying to find a form for those questions. I think that's that's the process for me. Yeah. And what did you find when you revisited your memories of the time while you were studying at CalArts? Um, it's interesting because I, I think I, I interviewed people who had been in Michael Asher's class at the time I was there. So it wasn't... It wasn't a comprehensive research from the whole, from the, I mean, I extensively researched the history of the school, the history of the class. Actually, John Baldessari started the class, then Michael Asher took it over. And, but I focus in my interviews on people who were studying during the time I was there. So over those two years, the two years I was there. And yeah, I, I think it, everyone's had time to reflect as well and that so in some ways I was interested in um, these kind of wormholes of memory and time that, that were produced between the then 2010 and 98-99 and a degree of distance and ability to reflect more critically on, on their experiences of, of the class um, And I think all of their experiences sit since then as well. They're all in, all their memories are inflected with their um, their work, their working methods since their experiences being artists and working in the art world since um, or not uh, or teaching as well. Um, and I think the film I wanted to make a film that was not just a, a straightforward historical documentary, but a portrait almost of this mental space that that's created um around the school around this class um it's it's a portrait of um the memory as much of as of the place you know, so about that period of time yeah. and that period when the the class was taught what does this approach to teaching art in the u.s uh tell us about art practice today I think one one thing that became very clear to me quite quickly um, was that if you look at the history of CalArts, but then more widely at higher education in 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 the U.S. in general, um, it has it has always always been marketized to some degree. But I guess um, I was also looking at it through the lens of Europe and the U.K. and and this ongoing marketizing of higher education so it's really with all of its flaws post-studio I mean I did explore some of that in 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 the film um nonetheless it was a a utopian moment of some kind in which there wasn't really a value 
or a it wasn't quantified that that the the that moment of education wasn't quantified and valued um and that's quite hard to see existing in most education now um where there's an open-ended process and his the class could go on for two days sometimes um because there wasn't there's was a sense you had to just speak out all the possible meanings of a work um and i don't think it's it's a more i think it's also a was a situation where there's like an open horizon of knowledge not just a um communication of set of skills or fixed notion of what knowing something is um a set a set of a set of um knowledges that pre-exist the class i mean that is also what i think art can do as well it it, it always seeks to push at the limits of what we understand so i think asha's class effectively did that and it's hard to see situations where that um continues to be possible i think even at calarts there are questions when i was researching it and after after asha stopped teaching whether post studio would still be practical practical anymore um because it it required such a investment um but also this open ended process so um i think there's a yeah there was a it's a great value to that that practice and that space you talked a bit about your methods yeah. when when yeah. you're working on a on a piece mm. uh, in your work you integrate documentary and fictive modes of filmmaking can mm. you share your reflections yeah. on this blurring and mm. how how it might function for viewers sure i i think i initially Here I could talk a bit about the my initial idea for the film and how it combines fiction and documentary. So I I'd been um I was interested in starting with something that was a study and critical and then for it to slowly turn towards fiction. So so there's I would say that I in all my work there's fiction there's documentary but i try not to like there's a general i think there's a general tendency in cinema and documentary both in the mainstream and in more experimental practices where the two are blurred where there's a blurring and a kind of a uh, hybridizing of the two but i th- I have some discomfort with that merging of the two. I think it's there's a way in which I try to work that with each film the relationship of the two has a it's a particular relationship. They there's a a shape to that relationship. So in 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 this film I wanted that twist to happen where it starts as one thing and twists into another thing. Um in more recent work i try to sort of sit the two documentary and the fiction alongside each other so that we're there's some awareness that they they exist together but they're like two poles two opposite poles like a positive and a negative negative pole um i think there are lots of ways in which the film film can reflect or not reflect reality. So I think there's a, like documentary we make an assumption that it's like a, like a mirror 
up to reality. Objective and, yeah, it's and objective, neutral. Yeah. Of course, it's a story, but I, nor then I think there's a been a sense in which it's um, all documentaries now taken to be st- story and fiction as well now, which I th- there's there's some other balance. I think it's for me it's worth sort of passing out the two. You know, there's not not to keep them like separate and categorically separate out in different works, but that within one work, that relationship has to find a um, a more defined balance or or a comp- like a composition or I'd say like a f- a figure in music. You have like a figure in music, and the same there's figure in each film in the relationship of the documentary and the fictional elements. Um, so yeah so i i would say in this film um the i had been the the initial inspiration had been a f- slightly faulty memory of an essay by proust which was also i guess about memory and construction of a space um through memory or a whole world um and he wrote a series of essays called, there was a series of essays published called Against Saint-Beauvais, um, where he criticizes a eminent critic of the time. And it starts off as literary criticism, criticism, and very slowly, almost imperceptibly, it becomes like the beginning of um, remembrance of time past, this fictional world, this fictional space. And I was just fascinated by that turn in in one document in one text from one kind of writing into another kind of writing um so yeah i think that that was important that was important to me at the beginning to have that turn um but i yeah i I was why i'm also i think i was also interested in how can criticism kind of critical thinking um on the world coexist alongside the construction of a fiction as well and that I think we always think of fiction as a story as a completely um, hermetic world or of course it relates to our world but it's a fictional space is somehow sealed off but how can how can you build a fiction that's that then um, gives us access to more critical judgment on the world as at the same time as being a space of fiction um, and I think I started to, in the previous work, maybe even more so, monuments started to explore what fiction might be separate from story, which is, which is still something I'm trying to work out. I think it's. I think we ass- we think of fiction and we assume that means story, but I think at least in, I mean in literature certainly, but in cinema and film, um, it's all of the plastic elements of the work. That also construct um, this fictional space, and it's it's um, yeah, it's an ongoing ongoing exploration for me. So, do you think that we live in a time where our perception of truth, reality, fiction is shifting? It definitely is, and I think um, I guess this film walkthrough tried to prior to the whole um, fake news. Um, destabilizing of democracy through social media and so on it sort of predates that but i was very conscious of all of the potential somehow for that to 
happen through social me- the film tries to speak to some of those um how social media may affect democracy and so i'm yeah so they're the attempt not to to both blur and to inform at the same time it's it's a it's a it's a subtle balancing act i think because i i wouldn't want the film i not i wouldn't fall, want to fall into the camp of um saying truth claims don't matter at all that that everything is fictional um i think that's obviously what some politicians depend on you know to to um to and that i think in the light of the last two years the film does make some indication towards this i guess i describe it as history and memory become there's a kind of um weather they're like weather systems now through social media they become very unstable and um i think the film points a little towards that potential effects of of um of um social media yeah can you talk about your influences yeah um i guess there's they're quite broad for this film like they're for everything from 70s giallo films which were mysteries murder mysteries and mm-hmm. um, i think they they were they were the diary like a dario gento but i'd also say mario bava they're very impressionistic um i think the element that i drew from from those films most on for walk through was a sense of um of intrigue of institutional intrigue that we're never quite sure of um but also I think I tried to define it, maybe not, and still I'm trying to, but um, there's something in those films in that the the main protagonists are sometimes quite dull and uninteresting and and we're almost put in the place of the the killer. There's 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 sort of ambivalence about right and wrong in them. And I think in this film and walk through I was trying to define or get deeper into that place where we're all there's a degree of culpability and complicity in all of us as much as we try to do the right thing and that there's kind of the the good and the bad is all mixed up together somehow and and how we yeah how do we negotiate that how do we how do we um how do we survive and um engage democratically <laughs> I think everyone struggles with that on a small in a small way and in a big way you know on a, on a um, larger political way and in a smaller political way and the film tries to make some analogy between these larger democratic forums and the very small forums of um, our education and then maybe now you also have media as this other forum and is it you know is, as i said before is is there um is um is that a truly democratic space you know everyone can tweet but 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 what's the actual nature of that tweet does it is it about is it a real conversation or is it um is it re- reproducing 
pre-existing understandings and, and um, yeah I think that the film yeah more broadly the film tries to understand this like so- notion of social reproduction like how and and me and technologies place in social reproduction is it is is traditionally education would be the critical factor like how one generation reproduces another generation but now you have this other unpredictable element of technology um and how does you know how does that ramify through these institutions as well both both uh political larger democratic institutions and education so i think another aspect of the film was thinking about how distance and presence and distance are changing through social media through the through distance learning through the kind of branding of branding of education um so it tries to be some it, without without being too overt the film i also imagined it as a kind of distance learning the the recording of a distance learning website so it's both it's both um actually what we see the film is something fixed and not not interactive but it's a recording of something that may have been interactive at some point um so where we're seeing and that that's of an, a distance learning site, but can can you really learn? Is education really possible at a distance, or is there something in um, physical about physical proximity, um, the body's relationship to other bodies that's still necessary? Um, are they are they not comparable? They, I think they try. There's been attempts to. Um, to do distance learning, to do to do, uh, there's also every large university has outposts across the world now. It's a branding exercise, but um, yeah, how? What are the effects of not being present anymore? And and is it really possible to learn that way? Um, is not just learn, but is it possible to? have a um for democratic discourse to take place not in person um do you can you really have a dialogue is is opposition or conflict possible if you're not um in proximity as well um i think those those were yeah i think i i guess no no one has resolved it <laughs> yeah, yeah it's still it still seems to just gather pace and it's um like how it's it's re refashioning uh, life at all these levels. So yeah. Okay. Well, th- thank you, Redmond. Yeah, thanks so much, Julian. It's great to talk about the film again after these years. These years. To think about it again. <laughs> thank you. Pour plus d'informations, visitez galerie.uco.ca et cuag.ca. <laughs>